afraid, and this is just another voice of the resistance. We're here to resist global world tyranny. We're here to resist all these plans for depopulation, deconstruction, dissolution of nations. Looking at the total default of our country after 2019, which was one of the best financial years of growth we ever had. So we have this onslaught diabolical and maniacal leftism. And we have to die on the hill of our freedom and our national sovereignty. We have no choice. We have to resist at all costs to the very end. So we're with those people that are in the dungeons of Washington, D.C. We're with Ashley Babbitt, who got her next shot in the Capitol. We're with the resistance with you out there when you're trying to find a way for your kids not to be molested and turned into perverts at your local school with you. Alright, welcome back here to Syllabus Journal Entry. We're doing our little our journalism that we do. We're going to go through some of the the media reports and some of the highlights, some of the interesting details that are coming through in current events recently. And I think that um, we've been listening to the War Room, uh, Steve Bannon's War Room a lot. He, it's kind of quirky. A lot of times they're always doing this or that report from the Vatican or whatever, but, but they keep it really real and they hit pretty hard. So let's listen to some of their updates here. Just, just open up our show today. Coming war in Taiwan at the bottom of the hour, but I got to ask you guys, Brian, I want to start with you and then bring in Dr. Navarro. Joe Biden, the world moves in Washington, D.C. about political capital. In other words, if you have a mandate like like uh, like FDR had in 1932 with the Great Depression or, or Lyndon Baines Johnson had after Kennedy's assassination in 64 against Barry Goldwater or like Ronald Reagan had particularly in 1984, we had these – you can actually get big things done. Right. But but Biden had no uh, it had no mandate. Right. And, and it basically a house that's a couple of votes, you know, five votes, you know, five seats away, having just lost 14 seats, having just lost 14 seats in 2020 in the Senate, a dead tie. These numbers, Brian, have you ever seen numbers anywhere at any president or any level at all when you're at Claremont that shows you the implosion of the radical Biden regime? No, never. And, and but of course one wonders how much of a you know positive outlook people ever had of Joe Biden. The entire 2020 campaign was built on Donald Trump is Hitler, and all of his supporters are racist. That was the fundamental message of 2020, and the media and the tech oligarchs all supported that, and they hit it over and over and over again. And I don't even believe that was enough to stop Donald Trump from winning the election. And it's yet to be proven that there was all the voter fraud that, that I and others have alleged. But I think the evidence is mounting. I think it's clear in Arizona that that election should never have been certified. I think we're going to find the same thing in Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, and elsewhere. And so... The reason Joe Biden is imploding is because he never had those numbers to begin with. And people didn't believe Donald Trump was Hitler. They believed that their lives were better. 
they were richer, they had jobs, their families were happier. And so when you tell people things over and over again, they may not believe them. And then you tell them Joe Biden won the election, and they don't believe that either. And so we're living today in an age of both confusion and deception. And the American people don't know what to think of it, but they do know their lives are manifestly worse today under Joe Biden. And that's why the numbers today reflected, even though I don't even think the media wants those numbers really reflected that way. Is I want to go back and, and Peter jump in here, but Brian, for you, is I keep saying that the, the implosion of the numbers, which are historical lows and so quick, what is the radical policies? People, number two, they never really talked about what he was going to do, and people are seeing it now. But he really started a base that was closer to Clinton in 92, which led to the Gingrich Revolution, which is 43%. And he's now at Clinton levels because Clinton collapsed from a 43% base, not Obama's base. It is mathematically impossible for this guy to have gotten 81 million votes and to be at these levels. Do you agree with that, Brian Kennedy? Yeah, totally. Uh, I totally believe that. P people, look, people see with their own eyes what's going on here, and they see that Biden is not who he presents himself to be. Look, he, he's a man who barely can finish a sentence. He cannot command either, either the microphone or, one wonders, his own government. He looks to be handled from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. Honest people look at that and think, that's not real. What's going on here? And you combine that with an economy that is very, very uncertain today, shortages in our markets, gas prices that are through the roof, and people wonder, is anybody in charge of this government, or are the people in charge of this government today meaning to do us this kind of harm. It's, it's like really with the vaccines. The vaccines don't look to be about public health. They look to be about control of the citizenry by the government. And people are upset about that too. See, see let me make a point here. Uh, one, one of the most remarkable things about this whole situation now is this schism or gap between the narrative and spin of mainstream media in the White House versus what is being expressed in public opinion polls. Uh, for example, most of the American people now believe, rightly, that the virus created by Fauci and the Chinese Communist Party came from the Wuhan lab, right? That's not the narrative spin. Most of the American people now, or at least a good strong majority of them, believe that the election was stolen or rigged by Biden's forces from Trump. That's clearly not the narrative spin of the corporate media and the White House. What I think is going on here is something remarkable. Um, technology is a double-edged sword. In this case, technology is working for us. I, I refer to the kind of the big six now with War Room at the top of the pyramid you got National Pulse, you got Gateway Pundit, you got Revolver.News, you got Human Events, you got John Solomon, Just the News. What all of those six share in common, uh, not just the fact that they, they reflect a, a populist, nationalist point of view, they're all disconnected. They've cut the cable cord, right? And they're communicating directly through the American people, particularly the newer generations of Americans who are the millennials are more more in tune with the technology. And so we're seeing 
th this remarkable plummeting of Biden's uh, numbers, uh, even as the mainstream media uh, tries to prop him up. Uh, the interrupt time book, I think, is important. It's a three-act play. You know, the first act uh, basically is the pandemic. The second act is, is a lot about communist China screwing us. But, but by the time you get to the third act, there's no question that this election was stolen. And as Brian points out, uh, the latest results from Arizona emphasize that, that every one of those battleground states' election results should be decertified. And this is why we need full forensic audits to keep pushing forward for this. We are heading towards a constitutional crisis. The last thing I'll say is it's driving me a, a, a crazy here for people to keep talking about 2024 and 2022. But one of the missions of in, the In Trump Time book is to get to the bottom of what happened on November 3rd and resolve that question. My own view is that Trump should be in the White House right now and that he should be in the White House before 2022. And this whole idea of, of a 2024 strategy, Steve, um, I think works counter to the, the imperative for election integrity, for our economy, for our political system to get to the bottom of what happened on November 3rd and January 6th, Steve, and January 6th, because you'll see in Trump time, the big reveal there is that it's the last thing uh, Trump, you or I, wanted uh, to have what happened happen. No, because we want decertification. Brian, let's talk about that in Arizona. You've been about, I had a long conversation with a couple of establishment types last night from Wisconsin. They said what they're finding in Wisconsin, and Rachel Maddow was mocking last night, is going to blow people's heads up. Wisconsin's always been the easiest to prove. They found even more that's going to shock people. Brian Kennedy, the uh, 3 November movement about the decertification. It's getting traction now in Arizona. Walk us through your beliefs, because you're, you're one of the architects of this. How do you think this plays out? Well, I think the uh, the evidence is clear that there were a lot, you know, over 50,000 illegal votes. That's just the things you can find easily. You want to dig deeper, you can find even more. They haven't done the canvas because, frankly, the Biden Justice Department threatened everyone in in Arizona who was going to be doing the canvas, and so that, that, that was not productive. So you see the power of the government to come in, use the FBI as a, a tool to discipline the election audit movement. We should be concerned about that. But when you look at Arizona, if we keep at it and don't back up and just keep on finding and explaining to people all those illegal votes, the only logical thing for the legislature to do is to decertify the election. That's the just thing to do. Doesn't mean we're going to overturn the election, but for the historical record, for the legal record, if in fact... Joe Biden did not win the state of Arizona, and I don't believe he won the state of Arizona. And those 54,000 votes all by itself would mean that it should not have been certified to begin with. The right thing to do would be to decertify it. So we're just rolling along with this track here, and we have to kind of put it into context, the whole discussion, so that it makes sense when we're making a little notation here of this discussion. And so on the left, on the big tech Giants, the oligarchy, the, um, the like we said, the party of Davos team out there that's trying to globalize the world into, you know, and, you know, North American unions and 
and different United, United Nations sectors all around the world and trying to find a way to, to you know, have everyone in the world indebted to the World Bank and the World Economic Forum so that we all have to live in huts and we'll just return to this kind of universal serfdom under the the, uh, the, the 1%. So that's, that's the name of the game here. It's really, the, just like my wife pointed out, or earlier, it's the it's 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 a fast forward to Agenda 21. So after we had 2019, and we had the best economic year of growth in GDP, and and uh, we just had staggering uh, different records broken with people at work, and we and we really just became energy independent, and we became the world's economic superpower. Without doubt, uh, we had to have the stolen election. We had to have this nosedive into the perverse and disgusting and reprobate Biden crackhead team over there. And now we have to have the masters of the universe trying to tilt the, uh, the, the world global international agenda towards that China so that China would have the lead here. And so that's kind of what we're dealing with. We're dealing with an enormous reversal of the natural state of, of affairs in the world, a coordinated effort to to bring us to the United Nations Agenda 21. And of course, Agenda 21 is really Agenda 2021, and it looks like we're right on track. So we have to get ready. We have to get ready for a massive austerity, massive cuts, which means that we're going to see huge poverty. We're going to see a crash in the economy. We have to, we have to segue over into this technotronic era. And uh, people aren't really ready for it. They're not really ready for the merger and the chaos that's going to happen uh, at our border, for one with our money on another as we begin to see that the Federal Reserve uh, node is going to collapse entirely. And then also we have the issue with the constitutional crisis that we're approaching with the presidency. Obviously, Joe Biden is not the president, and he's commanding, is up there in the commanding the levers of power and pushing the buttons of state and, and setting policy and, and, and tearing down everything that the Trump build, and it's not just about him and Trump, it's about him, it's about Biden being used as a mechanism to tear down the country. So before we can really right the ship and correct the wrong, we'll see if the left can bury America in so many disasters that we can't can't deal with it. And then we have the issue with Taiwan. China is using all this chaos to approach and creep up on Taiwan. So all these different cross-section of issues and huge crises are happening to us at the same time. So we're going to have this collapse economically. We're going to have the devaluation and the loss of our credit standing. And, and the, the world reserve currency will no longer be the Federal Reserve node. At the same time as the border is being unmanned. And they basically just took apart the, the border patrol and just dissolved them. So people can just cross into the border. And then we have the, you know, so if we have no border, we have no country. And so I think that this, the, the shock and, and, and the shock wave of these cathartic events will begin to slowly spread out like ripples in a pond across the country. And as our money is devaluating, uh, China is going to begin to take over Taiwan. And we'll see that the it's the uh, it's the other Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley East, they like to call it, will be in the hands of our enemies, just like Kabul is, which is just another example of the treachery and the diabolical collapse. Uh, we had a managed decline. Of American hegemony, and now we have just a nosedive. So, with that, we're just going to return here to this interesting conversation, and we're going to return here to these uh, clips and audio discussion here that we're going to basically work our way through. So, you need people with courage. Mark Fincham is there. He's fighting Wendy Rogers, Sonny Borelli, and others 
if they keep it up over time, we will get this done. But I would say to Peter that that time grows short and the other side has figured out a way of stalling. And unless we ump the, you know, raise up all the MAGA base to really demand that they get this done, not only in Arizona, but in Georgia and Wisconsin and elsewhere, yeah. we are going to run out of time. Amen, brother. Yeah. That's why, by the way, I think, I think I would say we decertify action, these action, and action. it's a constitutional, it's a, it's a constitutional issue. We'll take a short commercial break. You got to decertify in Arizona. That's got to be the, the pressure point right now. Short commercial break. Kinetic war coming in Taiwan. Who tells us that? President Xi of China tells that Chinese Communist Party next in the war. War Room. Pandemic. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. 中华民族历史演进大事所决定的，更是全体中华儿女的共同意愿。And Ten years ago, twelve years ago, uh, that we're going to put up to also about his warning about all this. So people that are old China hands, and I'm glad to say that according to Josh Rogan's book Chaos Under Heaven, which is really the the, the Trump's first term about the the war with China, he identified uh, Peter Navarro myself as the heads of the super hawks, and the super hawks different from hard lines and realizes that we don't believe the Chinese Communist Party is a legitimate government of China. We believe it's a transnational. Criminal organization has to be taken down and destroyed. Okay? You can't negotiate it. You can't play around with it. You can't play footsie with it. You certainly can't be in business with it. And that's what Larry Fink, this guy right here, Mitch McConnell's paymaster, Larry Fink, the $10 trillion man, so says the Financial Times of London today, he's in business with him. He's a partner of She's. So I want to start with you, Navarre, and then go to Brian Kennedy. We've warned the country that if we don't confront this radical regime with information war and cyber war, if we don't confront it with economic war, we're going to slide into a kinetic war in the South China Sea and Taiwan. And Taiwan right now is Silicon Valley West. The American economy cannot run unless we have an ally in Taiwan that gives us free access to all advanced chip design. Dr. Navarro, then I'll go to uh, Brian Kennedy. Taiwan uh, is critical. Again, history serves us here, Steve. If you go back to World War II, uh, Imperial Japan's entire strategy was projecting its power uh, first from the what they call the first island chain, which goes from Japan through Taiwan over to the Philippines, uh, and then out to the second island chain to all of those islands where so many American lives were lost. And Right now, Taiwan is basically the centerpiece of the first island chain. It's, the, it's where we can effectively contain Chinese military power from projecting to first Hawaii and then to the west coast of the United States. So uh, you're absolutely right. Taiwan serves um, an, a, a huge economic purpose. 
it controls so much of our chip supply. It's why we should have it here, not there. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, military strategists uh, are horrified by the idea that we could lose Taiwan. The, the problem we have now, um, as always, is that weakness uh, invites aggression. Uh, whether it's uh, the Munich Accords uh, with with Hitler, um, and now uh, what we're doing with China, this pandemic—I can't stress this more, Steve—the Chinese Communist Party virus, which was helped created by Tony Fauci and the NIH, uh, has given the Chinese Communist Party tremendous opportunities uh, geopolitically to advance its power much more rapidly than it would have otherwise had. Hong Kong would still be free and democratic if not for the Chinese Communist Party. They effectively locked locked protesters in under the guise of the pandemic and took Hong Kong. What's going when that the other uh, the target of course was President Trump to take him down. Now they got the feckless weak Joe Biden. And what's horrific, Steve, about the situation and uh, in human events, Jack Pasobuk's been doing great work on this. Uh, National Pulse, uh, others, Gateway Pundit, have pointed out uh, just how many uh, of Biden's top senior officials are compromised through money pots uh, by the Chinese Communist Party. This is a very, very dangerous situation. Look at the cold, uh, the clips uh, up on the website. If we get a chance to play them, Ashley, tell us argues that uh, if things start in Taiwan, they will likely end in kinetic war. It is that serious. So, Brian Kennedy, here's the issue. Do we have, as Peter Navarro has been banging me all night on text messages and emails, do we have a situation here of wag the dog? People have to understand these things are kinetic. When you see, are connected, when you see these videos of the Lao Beijing, of old hunter names, going into these offices in China and saying, hey, where's my money or where's my apartment? And the management saying, hey, sorry, can't get your money. The, the collapse of the of the shadow banking, and, and we're going to put up a, a thing from an article from Zero Hedge, the great Zero Hedge, that will chill you to the bones when you see, I think there's $63 trillion, at least that's what they calculate as, in China in real estate assets is the collapse of the shadow banking market, the collapse of the real estate market in China, going to put Xi in a wag-the-dog mode where he's got to jack up hyper-nationalism and, and do that to attack Taiwan, uh, Brian Kennedy? Well, he's going to have to do one or the other. I mean, the, the way things are imploding now in their real estate market, I saw that zero hedge piece, and I would recommend that also, is that you have a whole bunch of people in China who are uncertain about the future. You have, a, first of all, a real estate market that's debt built on debt. So many people have called it a Ponzi scheme of sorts already. But you, ha you have a bunch of people in China who are worried about the future, so they're selling off their real estate assets. And then other people wonder whether their assets are going to mean anything, and then it kind of goes into a free fall. But what that signals, to me anyway, is that the Chinese people think that China may go after Taiwan. And that may lead us into a war with the United States. And Joe Biden is not a strong leader. And so the world is coming apart. So let's just pause it right there. We can continue to listen to this and you can hear the different references to the different kind of unadulterated 
news journals that are out there. You have Revolver News. You have Human Events. You know, you, the, the, the different names of the different news organizations that they were discussing are the ones that we have to listen to, a Gateway Pundit. You know, we have to be careful, uh, you know, where we get our information from because the rest of it is just partisan, hyper-partisan rancor and it's just really just new world order mandate COVID-19 mind numbing, like MK ultra brainwash just constantly with CNN, with the racial amping up the racial things. And the it's it just constantly, uh, and it, it, Fox is weird because they just kind of remain, they, they don't flinch like huge, huge news topic news stories happen and they just don't report. They don't have any kind of response. They don't, they don't update the audience to the, the different kind of information that we're all getting out here. They're treating us like we're fools and they're trying to guide the narrative and just carry on with their day. Like we're talking heads, just like listening to, into their earpiece and being told what to say. And, and then out here, when I, when we monitor the, uh, the, the world and keep our ear to the ground as it were, and listen to these other uh, reports that are coming in, we find out all this kind of information. So that's why it's so crucial that you guys, you know, work with us and work with, different media outlets so that we can kind of get an idea of what's really going on. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess apparently you belong to a cult. If you don't like the fact that, uh, there was a massive cyber attack in, in the, the cyber world. And then on the ground, there was massive ballot stuffing and, and, you know, as far as harvesting massive ballots and stuffing massive printed out ballots into ballot boxes and just all kinds of different weird rules and the different, you know, obviously the different states have different rules on how they conduct the elections. And they had a really intensely complex and sophisticated uh, network of fraud that was used as the ground game. They desperately had to get rid of, rid of Trump. We all had to go down and vote. And as Americans, we had to go into the, into the ballot box and vote. And these people, these forces from the outside had to find a way to adulterate and manipulate and flip a switch in the results so they could get the results that they wanted to ultimately get. They had to get this feckless, idiot, crackhead family Biden in there when it was obviously the loser. And there would be um, catastrophic results. And the, uh, as far as Afghanistan, you can see that Biden is more than a dupe. He's a Manchurian candidate. He's a treacherous, traitorous, backstabbing asset, uh, you know, there were the, the Biden family is an intelligence asset of our enemies. The way we would we wish that we could like have leverage over Xi Jinping and, and have something over him so that he would do what we we told him to do. We, he would be our intelligence asset. That's that's what Joe Biden is for our enemies. So we have to try to kind of become aware of that as Americans, not be afraid to say it, and not be afraid to say that you know displaying the government experiment on you and your family with these you know the strange vaccines or, or uh, I guess they're really not the vaccine is a term of art and so really what we're dealing with what we're really dealing with is gene therapy mRNA therapies that they're experimenting on you in, in different ways and there's really no telling what was in the placebos and we'll get into that in future episodes that we're coming out with and as we pointed out in other episodes not to kind of get diverged off into a totally different topic, but our enemies have been building these instruments for our destruction for quite a long time within and without. And so what it, what it, it remains to be seen whether we as a people can, can rise to the, to these times and do what needs to be done wisely, carefully. And with all of our, with, with even with our lives at stake, we have to do what we must do. I think that 
I mean, didn't George Washington and his men have to sneak cannons out in the dead of winter uh, at night and, you know, with sleds? I think that's the deal. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, if we don't have any men out there that are willing to uh, band together and stand together and, and do what it takes to, to make this kind of, this country safe for republicanism and for democracy, then we'll have to watch America fall in our time. I think that's what we're all desperately and vigorously working and fighting to, to work against. With the United States. No, you yeah. sell it off. I, I, I want to go to what Navarre just said about the compromise has been shown by National Pulse and, and with Natalie Winters and, and Raheem and all these other teams, Pasovic. He talked about the compromise, uh, the hard drive from hell, the compromise of the Biden administration. Your theory of the case is very different than the kind of mind that it's a reckless, a radical, it's a reckless radical policies with incompetent execution. That's why they're in free fall. You think, oh, no, Bannon. There's a design to this. Tell us, walk you through a theory of the case, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Brian Kennedy, then I want to hear Navarro's response. Well, look, the, these people know what they're, I mean, these people have been in government before. You know, Ron Klain is the chief of staff. Tony Blinken's secretary of state. These people are not new to the process. They do seem to know what they're doing. We don't like what they're doing. It may look incompetent at some level, or it could be a signal that the United States means to realign itself with the globalist project. Donald Trump has spent four years putting America first, making sure that we were separated from the globalist project. The Biden folks, I think, fully believe that we have to be part of a global order, and anything that smacks of America first has to be eradicated. That includes a strong military, strange as this may sound, a strong economy, and operating in the world as if we were the superpower. And so when they pull us out of Afghanistan and leave $84 billion of equipment and give over Bagram Air Base to effectively the Chinese government, what was that meant to do? It was meant to signal that we are not going to be the superpower of the world. We're going to defer that to the CCP. Why else would you do that? People sat around a table the way we're sitting around the war room today, and they tried to make rational decisions. In the Biden administration, those rational decisions led us to where we are today, an economy that's in trouble, America with reduced credibility in the world, and the CCP believing that they can take Taiwan without us doing anything. So, Steve, I, I and, think we're on the southern border, so Dr. Go ahead. Go ahead, Dr. Martin. Yeah, what I'm seeing is um, is, is political Darwinism. Uh, what, what you have is uh, an elite in this country. Portions of that elite gravitate to the money pot of communist China. A key strategy of the Chinese Communist Party is to shower the elites, the academics, the, the, the potential government officials, with money, invite them to conferences, give them special lectureships, um, things like that, basically co-opt them. And the ones who are attracted to that are the ones most susceptible to the managed decline of America, the inevitable rise of, of communist China. And, and so that's what we have. So in that sense, I agree with Brian Kennedy that at least part of this is by design. But where I disagree um, is is based on history as well. 
Yes, these people had eight years of experience, in many cases, in the Obama-Biden regime. But if I simply look at their economic policies, uh, they've learned absolutely nothing in those eight years uh, that, that they're carrying into the four years uh, that would suggest that they know what they're doing. So I do think that we have this, this, this lethally dangerous combination of both incompetence uh, and, and corruption and co-optation uh, that is leading us uh, quickly to a stagflationary crisis and the likely brink of war uh, in Taiwan, Steve. Uh, so, Brian Kennedy, we've got a couple of minutes here. Given that scenario, what's your recommendation to the War Room Posse? Right now, we know it's the most activist uh, audience in all media and it focuses on human agency. In a couple of minutes we got here in this segment, what should this posse do and what should they do right now to confront this, to combat this, and to defeat this? Well, look, I think the War Room presents it every single day. It's fighting on every front we can. It's taking this country back village by village. Politics is not easy. There, there's no silver bullet. There's no one speech somebody gives, even if it's President Trump, and I know he's giving a speech today. It's, it's no one speech. It's no one article. It's fighting every single day, persuading your neighbors, your friends, your countrymen, that in fact something is wrong in our government, not to give up. So I think it's clear to on its face and to all of us why this conversation is so important because it's the conversation that the hyper elite technotronic tech oligarchs, right? This is the nomenclature. This is the, the lexicon by which we can describe how we can kind of categorize our enemies, those who are trying to destroy us. And so it's a small vanguard, a small cohort of, of the vastly rich and powerful individuals and like we pointed out in other podcasts and other episodes, a lot of these vastly wealthy individuals have titles and they're a part of a, a peerage and a part of a system of monarchialism that had its resurgence with the establishment of the EU and the process of denationalizing the world and, and begin to create transnational economic systems and currencies now. As they begin to, you know, you see the the United States, the Federal Reserve. No, you can see that our our system, our money, is going to take a, a turn towards hyperinflation. And as we lose our credit standing and our AAA credit standing in the world, will no longer be the the international reserve currency. And so, this is the kind of game that we're playing. This is the kind of losses that. America is going to take because of a fraudulent election. And there's so many mask-wearing, fascist Biden supporters out there that are, are going to, just like in every other Republican history, or any other wealthy and powerful nation that was destroyed and eroded from within and just collapsing in on itself. You can see that in the, the Weimar Republic in Germany, you can see it again and again, the same pattern. And you can see that we're approaching the same situation. So these same mask-wearing fools who are running around Walmart and treacherously trying to get everyone else to fall in lockstep with the authoritarian movements of this, these globalist machinations. As the program moves forward, we have to face these circumstances, these combined catastrophic crises. And those same fools, those same authoritarian, those useful idiots are the ones who will dissolve first. You know, people who are walking around uh, in flip-flops 
with cell phones, you, you know, in, in Walmarts are just not going to make it. And um, it's going to be tough. I think it's going to be a tough time ahead. I think that China is going to move on Taiwan. I think the world, the ground is going to shift under our feet. So for those of us who aren't astute followers of some of these broadcasts of these podcasts, you know, we're listening to very carefully to the, the different kind of discussion that's going on because some an important freedom of speech events are taking place. And, you know, a lot of really important ideas are being shared by some of the smartest people in the world. And we have to pay attention. And if we're just listening in to the TV, watching channels on the TV and watching news, you know, as we understood it in the past from the, from you know, the news core Pepsi corporation type channels out there, then you're never, ever going to hear anything interesting or true. You're just going to hear really dull, you know, passive lies. And uh, that's, that's what's been going on for so long now. So as we listen in here and pay attention to the war room and Steve Bannon and, and the things that he talks about, we'll learn a lot. That's what we need to do. So we're going to drop back here just a few months. It's just, that really, decades are happening in weeks now in the history. So just a few months ago, it was a totally different world. But let's listen to what was building up towards this the event in Afghanistan and this kind of preparation towards this military move on Taiwan by the CCP. There is these events in China and these certain financial events with these globalists and these super elite rich guys at Wall Street and in the city of London and they're in the Vatican and they're, uh, you know, in Geneva and and, and, and The Hague and all, all around the world. We have these individuals working hard to, you know, in Davos, you know, correct? We have these different individuals working hard to build a system of global economic prosperity and massive wealth for themselves at the expense and the enslavement of the rest of the world. And that's really fundamental underlying truth of it. So let's go ahead and just drop back here and listen to what the, the same exact discussion was building up to the one that we, we just listened to, which was from yesterday. Okay. A catastrophic disaster is upon the working class and middle class people in this country, particularly if you're a state employee or have a pension fund managed by one of the big pension fund managers. You have lost $400 billion that you will never get back in these Chinese equities. I talked to some of the most sophisticated people on Wall Street in the last 48 hours, including after this morning's show, and they said, Steve, we love your show this morning. You're dead spot on. However, the number is going to be a trade. And also they pointed out, that that doesn't include what all your money, that all the institutional money, which is your money, in private equity firms and, and venture capital. And they specifically called out Sequoia Capital, one of the biggest and most successful hedge funds, or excuse me, venture capital firms on Sand Hill Road, just near Stanford University, one of the top venture capitals of the country, right, run by a guy that's or one of the senior guys is a guy from Yale, Chinese, who's associated with the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. I was told that 50% of their total assets are involved in tech companies and companies in mainland China that will end up being a zero if she says they're a zero. Dr. Navarro, you fought this fight in the White House all the time. You and I fought it tooth and nail. The Committee on the Present Danger of China, Roger Robinson, Chris Acavella, we had Dan David, we've had we've done seminars, we have preached this, that you're going to seek with a stroke of a pen can have pure economic warfare. And all the media is covering is these Chinese tech companies, how they're managing for China. No. The real story 
is we got wiped out. We're going to get wiped out more, and you're never going to make that money back up with negative, with zero interest rates. You're done. Do so you think you got unfunded pension liabilities in this country today? You ain't seen nothing yet. And these are these crooks and scumbags on what, like Larry Fink and Schwartzman, and these crooks and scumbags on Wall Street. Dr. Peter Navarro, your thoughts? Uh, this is the uh, the Chinese Communist Party version of hogs get fed and pigs get slaughtered. The problem is, on Wall Street and at these pension funds, they, they dangle these prospects of big returns from these Chinese tech companies. And so when I'm at the White House trying to do things like investment restrictions and more transparency and all sorts of and shutting down the Hong Kong clearinghouses to cut off this investment to the Communist Chinese, uh, I got people like Steve Mnuchin at Treasury, Larry Kudlow at the National Economic Council, Steve Schwartzman lobbying the White House. It's like this is as an un, as an unregistered as an unregistered foreign agent is what he. But you know, just as you're going after poor Tom Barrick, you ought to check Steve Schwartzman all the yeah. time as an unregistered foreign agent. Check that one out, SDNY. Keep going. We could do a whole show on Steve Schwartzman working as, as Wall Street's pimp on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. But lest I digress, my point is that we were well aware in the White House, I sat many times in the sit room, the Oval Office, the Roosevelt Room, making a strong case that we had to wean ourselves from the Chinese Communist capital and let them not have access to ours. And we got a few things done that were constructive, but every time we tried to put the hammer down, it was... Mnuchin and Kudlow, I call them the Neville Chamberlain, the Lord Halifax of our time, and, and sometimes Bill Barr as well. And this is the problem. It's like we, now people are going to suffer. The other problem, Steve, which I talked repeatedly about when I was in the White House, is how these pension funds, particularly CalPERS, I mean, that is the poster child of a captured pension fund by Chinese interests. The guy that they put in charge at one point of running CalPERS, which is the largest pension fund, I think, in the world, was a yeah. guy, a Chinese-American, right, who spent time on sabbatical working in communist China at the agency, which was in charge of currency manipulation to screw yeah. Americans. I mean, you can't make that up. And what he did as soon as he came in was he began yeah. shifting all the, all the other stocks into Chinese yeah. assets, and now CalPERS, I'm sure, is... This is them. not about the Chinese people. The Chinese, we're, we're the Lao Beijing. We're the allies of Lao Beijing in their assault and fight against the transnational criminal organization that is the Chinese Communist Party. But if you take from the Wuhan lab bioweapon to now the economic warfare, they just wiped out. And they're going to end up wiping out $1 trillion. $1 trillion economic money. Economic warfare, Steve. That economic work, you ain't never making. So every time you see these articles right now about the tech companies in China and that she's getting more tech, yeah, that's what they're doing in China. In the United States, you pay for it. Your pension fund managers, there ought to be lawsuits, class action lawsuits all over. Off to go for breach of fiduciary responsibility. Start at the top. Ought to go to all the big guys, Schwartzman, uh, Fink, anybody's got exposure here. Ought to go after all of them. They ought to have to stand and deliver about why they did this. And we've warned these people for years and years and years and years. you got to get out of these stocks or she one day is going to decide that, hey, let's make it a zero. Okay, we're going to turn it in a moment. We've got Senator Matt Canavan from Queensland, Australia. He's on top of what happened with the military in Sydney and also the Chinese Communist Party in their finance and economics next in the world.
So that's a rewind to August 2nd, 2021, and that was the War Room. So that's just, as you can see, it's just a, a few short months ago. And as we're moving forward, we're just trying to find a way to look at the events and the circumstances of our of our of our, our fight for freedom here in America. The certainty of the permanent and lasting success of our uh, the government that we arrange for the, to protect our freedoms is not written in stone. We have to make every effort every day, despite our, our jobs and our careers, and, and everything we do has to be in alignment in this tug of war against the principles of anarchism and communism and Marxism, which is really Hegelianism. And really, Hegel was a creature of the aristocracy of Europe. He was a creature from the universities of, of Bavaria and Ingolstadt. And so in the middle of all this, I really just, in, in, in these different themes that we're discussing, I'm looking at this book here. It's called Hegel and the Hermetic Tradition by Glenn Alexander Maggie. I'll just read a little bit. In 1778, Lessing publishing his Ernst and Falk Dialogues for Freemasons. Lessing's Nathan the Wise, 1779, a play with some broadly construed Masonic themes, was a great influence on Hegel. Friedrich Wilhelm Hegel, philosopher. Among, among other things, the play presses the Masonic theme of a unity of a world's religions into one, and thus becoming an invisible church. In Act 4, Scene 7, the Christian friar praises Nathan, a Jew, and he goes to the law through the discourse. In the first letter we possess of Goethe's written in 1764 when he was 16, he was has him applying earnestly for admission to a Masonic lodge. He was not permitted Masonic membership, however, until 1780 when, on June 23rd, he was initiated into a lodge in Weimar. In 1782, he was the recipient of higher Templar degrees of the right of strict observance, which we know later on is, is in the order is the, is the 33rd degree. According to Heinrich Schneider, the German Masonic lodges were teeming with magical, theosophical, and mystical notions, quote-unquote. Schneider notes that much of their lore was Kabbalistic in origin, the German Masonic movement was strongly influenced by the writings of the French Mason Beaumain, Louis Claude de Saint Martin. About 1770, the year of Hegel's birth, a Hermetic rite was established based on the doctrines of the Hermetica. Hermes Trismegistus himself appears in such German Masonic rites of the 18th century as that of the Magi of Memphis. In general, the higher degrees of masonry were and are strongly mystical. Schneider was claimed that the Enlightenment is partly responsible for this. The Enlightenment quest for universal knowledge and power over nature led to a revival of mysticism and occultism. For these had always promised to deliver just those boons. In a reaction against the implicity and sometimes explicity anti-spiritual and anti-religious rationalism of modern science, certain individuals sought a truer enlightenment in hermeticism and hoped to make these secret societies into secret weapons. Schneider writes, long before Kant's important answers to the great problems of human life, the mystics in 
the certain secret societies had transformed these societies into anti-enlightenment organizations. Like, perhaps maybe Jacobinism. I'm just adding the, the idea of maybe perhaps Jacobinism in the French era. Anti-enlightenment organizations. And, and thus, keeping alive the mystical traditions had made possible the later merging of German idealism and mysticism. These, This mystical movement was the conservative revolution of the 18th century and if in its beginnings, its character was not exactly Christian, it was undoubtedly religious. The individuals known as the Illuminati were the reaction to this reaction. A counter-reformation, if you will. Back to the book. The Illuminati were founded in 1776 as a means to advance the ideals of enlightenment, opposition to traditional religion, superstition and feudalism, and advocacy of scientific rationalism, and the rights of man. Initially, they were led by their founder, Adam Weishaupt, 1784 to 1830, a law professor of the Bavarian University of Ingolstadt. Weishaupt, however, proved inept at organization, and he soon delegated a great deal of authority to our friend Adolf von Nieg, 1752 to 1796, who mounted a highly successful membership drive in 1781. Weishaupt's jealousy of Nieg's abilities led to their break three years later. Weishaupt appears to have endowed the order with hermetic trappings merely as a window dressing to entice members and perhaps to discourage the authorities from investigating. Members were encouraged to believe that their superiors possessed some special secret that they would be made privy to in time, which is really the basis of all secret societies, really. And as we go on, at its height, the Illuminati included literally Gautier, Herder, they're going to start naming these famous, uh, you know, the uh, contemporary philosophers and stupendously wealthy or aristocrats. Um, and this is important here. To note that Gautier Herder, as well as numerous other public figures and members of the aristocracy, Karl August, Duke of Weimar, the Prussian reformer Karl von Hardenberg, Duke Ferdinand of Braunschweig, Duke Ernst of Gotha, uh, 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 important publisher C.F. Coda, Count Johann Kobelenzel, and, and many others. The order has thus managed to insinuate itself into the governments of Austria and Germany. Well, of course, the whole scheme of this thing was born in Bavaria, in Ingolstadt, which is why we're, we're really getting, why I stopped to take a minute to read this book and to make this quotation, because Ingolstadt, and in Germany there in Austria, is the very heart of ultramontane, ultra-hyper-Catholic lords and princes. And this is the heart of monarchialism. Right? Monarchial uh, uh, thrones are in the loins of these men. And then they have this one guy who's a publisher, C.F. Coda, and of course that goes back to the, the, the Treaty of Verona. They had intentions here and had uh, designs to control press. And we can see that was instituted later on as we approach the, the Treaty of Verona in 1822. You can see that they had directly crystallized the idea of using mass propaganda to control the world. Okay, that was part of the Treaty of Verona there. And so these, this whole theme here, it's, let me continue, it's insinuated itself into the governments of Austria and Germany. This is the author. Not surprisingly, Weishaupt and company made the infiltration of the educational system a top priority. Wow, okay. 
The staff of the Carl School Stuttgart included several Illuminati. The influence of the order was short-lived, however, that's what they say, that they disappeared, but it's hard to believe that, and we'll go on. In 1784, Elector Carl Theodore of Bavaria, seeing the Illuminati as a threat to religion, issued a proclamation commanding them dis to disband. In 1785, Weishaupt was forced out of his professorship at Ingolstadt and went to live with a friend, um, Jacob Lanz, in Regensburg, uh, Regensburg, yeah, while out. Walking together one day, they were caught in a sudden downpour, and Lons was struck by lightning and killed. The Illuminati membership list was found on his body. This is how they were discovered. Constituting proof positive that the order had defied the elector's proclamation, the elector then issued a second pro pro proclamation commanding all Illuminati to, re to register with the government and promising a full pardon if they did so. Thus put the order in a terrible bind. The members could not possibly, they didn't know how complete the list was that the government obtained, so if they registered, they risked imprisonment or worse. If Carl Theodore's promise was disingenuous, on the other hand, if they did not register and their names were on the list, they risked imprisonment or worse. In this impossible situation, the order is self-destructed, as most members chose to obey the elector's edict, although rumors of the influence of the Illuminati continue to this day. It has never, so far as we know, officially re reactivated, and if it has reactivated, there is no evidence that it regained anything like the influence that it had between 1776 and 1785. Most of the Illuminati were also Masons. Okay, that's an interesting point. Jacques de Hont, in his Hegel Secret, provides a fascinating discussion of the influence of the Enlightenment ideals and the terminology of the, of the Illuminati on young Hegel. So this is, this is the period contemporary with this young man, Friedrich Wilhelm Hegel, who's going to be uh, coming up in Germany at the time. And we'll see that his connections as, as this young genius, right? Hegel's a genius. He's, he's coming up. He's being influenced in these same schools of thought, in these same places in Bavaria, and the same institutes and universities like Ingolstadt are the same schools that this young man is going to be going to with the same ideology. So it goes on here and talks about Goethe, the alchemist, the life of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, uh, Goethe, uh, Goethe, a goat, <laughs> whatever. Who cares about this guy? Some, some fancy smart people can pronounce it right, I don't care. Provides a fascinating case study of the 18th century hermeticists. His example makes it vividly clear that an eminent scientist and man of letters could still be deeply immersed in hermeticism as late as the second half of the 18th century. Most scholars, uh, hermeticism is just another way to say mysticism or my mystical arts. Most scholars, or magi, or magic, right? Most scholars treat the Enlightenment as a single unitary phenomenon, the effort to emancipate mankind from tradition, superstition, and despotism. But in fact, the Enlightenment took radically different shapes in different countries. This is especially true of Germany. Christopher Mackintosh writes, and when writes that when the Enlightenment quote-unquote, fell on German soil. It often took root in strange and contradictory ways. An example of this is the German phenomenon of enlightened despot, Example exemplified by Frederick the Great. In particular, the scientific spirit of the Enlightenment took longer to gain ground in Germany. Well into the time of Hegel and, and Goethe, Hermeticism was still seen in many quarters as a progressive influence. So alchemy survived much later in Germany than it did in the rest of Europe. So what we're talking about is a throwback era 
which was distilled and crystallized dark ages, right? So they were absolute, totally sold out and unwavering ultramontane Catholics who had to obey the word of the Pope, like as if it was life and death, like it was from the, from the mouth of God and had to make oaths to exterminate all other parts of the world, all other humans who are heretics who disobeyed the Pope. On top of that, they're completely inundated and eaten up with every kind of imaginable Rosicrucian and Freemason secret society that you can imagine. It's completely just distilled and, 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 and purified mysticism and Kabbalistic magic. And this is well into the 1800s, where we have, you know, I mean, Abraham Lincoln's going to come, we're going to free the slaves, we're going you know, you know, to have steam engines and locomotives and, you know, the Wild West and everywhere else in the world's moving on with, like, rationalistic intellectual reality. Of, you know, the, you know, dealing with it, but this particular place in Bavaria, in Germany, this particular quadrant of the world is going to be steeped continuously with, we'll see that, that uh, Basil Valentin, von Helmont, Swedenborg, right, you know, constantly, uh, Stephen King, the author, likes to, to talk about the Swedenborgian space and the, how how spirits can manifest, and you're going to have this whole thing with Helena Blavatsky and seances and mysticism and kind of trying to contact the the spirits of the dead, and this this whole thing is going to just the spirit of occultism is going to continue on and on and on in this particular place in Bavaria, where Hegel. The genius is now a young man, and that's the point why I'm reading this little section, to, to connect you with what is happening here in this area, to connect you with the Illuminati and the substructures and how it had created such control, how it was so insidious, because they would get people to commit illegal acts, to bribe them or offer them. I mean, they had men that who would go around pretending like they had wives who were beautiful women and then let other men sleep with them, and then... Of course it wasn't, it was just a ruse of the Illuminati. You kind of see that in the, the movie with Sherlock Holmes, the modern Sherlock Holmes movies. You know, you see how the Illuminati operated. How they appeared to have a whole room filled of 100 people dining, and they all just get up and leave. They're, just, you know, they're all beginning to be affected and controlled throughout the entire area. So the entire place was a control system of secret societies and the Illuminati. So... This is Hegel's, this is the same university Hegel is going to grow up in. He's really going to take the lead and become the new unspoken leader of the Illuminati forces, whether they reconstituted or whether or under a different name, whether they, re, they reconstituted and operated under a different name, however they went. The, for, the forces of monarchialism, the forces of monarchialism and ultramontane aristocratic power structures in the world did not leave, did not go away. So the, 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 the powers of the, the knights, the powers of the princes, the dukes, the powers of the, the nobility itself are tied up with the the prospects of, of Roman religion and are cannot exist in a world where men are free. And that's the point of why they why Great Britain and the other powers were were, were sailing to China in the 17 and 1800s for a long time and had treaties with them and then they built them up and set them up in different ways, allowed communism to take root, allowed it to become what it is and allowed it to become a weapon that's directed directly against America. Of course, the European Union has treaties with China they're not worried. Uh, everyone else is making, the United Nations, everyone else is making deals with China and China is getting ready to to focus its weapons on America. So let's go back to our original content here in the show. Let's go back to our original discussion and listen to a little bit more of the war room. 670s all the way through to the end of the decade. On top of that, you had Richard Nixon appoint 
Arthur Burns in 1969 as the Fed chair. And Burns was a very pliable and stupid man. Uh, he thought he could help Nixon get reelected by running the printing press stimulative monetary policy. And what that did and quickly was in 1971 lead to Nixon's decision forced by a wave of inflation to abandon the dollar standard. That was a deal that we set up at the end of World War II at Bretton Woods up in New Hampshire, most historic event in, in monetary history. Um, when Nixon pulled out of the dollar standard, the dollar fell by 30%. Hold it, hold, hold, hold it, hang on. Hang, hold, hold, Peter, hang on. Just make sure people understand it. That when you say dollar standard, that was the gold standard that that, that you could convert any dollar a uh, thirty five ounces of uh, thirty five ounces uh, of gold, right? It was the gold standard he pulled off. Right. Prior prior to World War Two, we the, the world was on a gold standard, a pure gold standard. And when that got out of whack, there's some people who argue, including myself, that the, the failure of the gold standard to uphold after World War One led to World War Two. This time, after World War II, it was like, okay, let's make it more solid by linking gold to the dollar. So, effectively, Steve, it's like when inflation started to erode the value of the dollar, France came a-knocking and said, hey, I want gold, I don't want dollars. And Nixon said, can't do that. Boom, dollar standard's gone. I want to put into this, this story here. The $10 trillion man. The ten trillion dollar man, Larry Fink's rise to become the king of Wall Street. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the paymaster for your government. And the and the Financial Times today lost all in chief. This is the reason. Offshore in chief, this guy, by the way, he is the king of Wall Street. He is the ten trillion dollar man. They control BlackRock controls ten trillion dollars of assets. This is the reason Mitch McConnell folded the other day. This is the reason that rents are out of control in this nation. This is the reason that we kowtow to the Chinese Communist Party. Not just Larry Fink, but what Larry Fink represents. The titans of Wall Street, the big media moguls, and of course Silicon Valley oligarchs, they control this country. And by the way, he controls the United States Senate. It's the reason, because the hedge fund kings did not want their bonuses messed with. This is why, because everybody in Washington, D.C. says, I can't, Mitch didn't tell anybody, this was so unlike it, we had this whole policy, and then out of nowhere, his paymasters called him. His paymaster said, Mitch, we get paid on an annual basis, right? You're going to mess up our bonuses, you got to kick this to the end of the year. We don't care what it means for the country, we don't care what it means to keeping the Biden administration. By the way, people have to understand something. In MAGA, we're all for taxing the very rich, okay? Because you know what? They're all progressive Democrats. Now, well, they all hate the deplorables, and they should be taxed, and Larry Fink should be taxed till he bleeds, okay? AOC, join us here to help us really get not, not the phony tax policies Democrats put up for your sponsors, which Larry Fink's one of. Okay, short commercial break. Back with Dr. Peter Navarro to talk about Mitch McConnell and the cave, the great cave on the debt ceiling. Dr. Navarro, as as irony would have it, as irony would have it, Larry Fink, and Larry Fink is a guy we're going to make famous on this show because he kind of he kind of slides behind the scenes. 
He, he pretended to be a, a, a friend of President Trump's, pretended to be a uh, supporter of President Trump's policies where he stabbed him in the back constantly. And here's the one thing where we get the Democratic Party, they have to understand. Uh, I want to I tax the super wealthy a lot. And one of the reasons is they're the supporters of the Democratic Party. All the world cap, all the guys on, on the corporations, on the world corporations, all the Wall Street guys are 100% left-wing progressive, most of them atheistic, materialistic, uh, uh, cultural Marxist. They're, they're state capitalists because they always want to regain. We absolutely should, because a couple of Republican donors have guys, all these anti-tax guys that were sitting there talking tax cuts. It should be tax cuts only for the working class and middle class. The super wealthy should be taxed a lot, okay? And I mean a lot. And starting with this guy and Steve Schwartzman and that whole pack of devils and demons, the book, In Trump Time, starts the opening scene like a, it's like an overture to a great opera. Starts in the East Room of the White House on the day that they signed, that you guys signed, the, the China, the, the phase one or the skinny deal, the China trade deal. It starts there. And Peter Navarro, go through and you identify the demons. And the biggest demon in the room is, guess what? The Financial Times' man of the week, Larry Fink, the king of what they call him. The $10 trillion man, Larry Fink's rise to become the king of Wall Street. Well, i got to tell you, we're going to make Larry Fink famous. We're going to show you exactly what Larry Fink's done to this country. And for everybody under 40 years old, MSNBC last night has a report to all meltdown about the rise of the rents. Rise of the rents because of this guy. They're buying up all the assets because Powell and the Biden administration have negative, have zero interest rates, allowing assets to explode. He's sitting there scooping up all the real estate and then renting it back to you. He's going to own the upside and you're going to pay for it. Okay? That's the con. That's the scam that's going on. And I got to tell you, this is why we're going to throw these bums out. Okay? It's now time to talk. One of the reasons I have Cortez and, and, and Navarro on here, and one of the reasons you got to buy in Trump time, they want you to be financially illiterate. They want you to be economically illiterate. They make it so obtuse the way they explain it. It's actually pretty fundamental. And it, by the way, if you explain it, you see how the system works, how you're paying for the system, and you're the one being ripped off. So in order to get into the granularity of that specifically, the way that you're being ripped off is because during the debt crisis of 1929, the Great Depression, this is right in the, in the period where we're leading right up to, to World War II, and our involvement, the U.S. involvement in World War II, and at that time, they're going to have a complete default, and they're going to move into these social security systems. And social security systems are a way for the government really to take control and to really monetize the human resources as debt collateral. So that's why you had to, in the 1933 and onward, you had to begin to have birth certificates and death certificates. And these are two, and these have cussive numbers, and these documents are in all caps, and these documents are to verify to the state a denomination of a person that was birthed so as that they can be now, uh, you, know, you know, federally subsidized in as much as that they can be, de de you know, denominated, and they can tell how much money that they can really get from taxes from each person, they can tell how much debt spending they can do, they can, they can tell a lot by beginning to to monetize the people and to number them. So they begin to the number of the people with social security numbers that we, we had when we were all born at the hospital. You have to realize they're very rich people, very elite people that were born in the manor house. You know, you can imagine Batman. He doesn't have a social security number. He was born in Wayne Manor 
you know, back in the back in, in, in the, uh, the big mansions. So when you have a big mansion and you have your doctor come in and, and help you, you know, you and your you know, rich wife or what have you have a baby, then you just fly away to Portugal and you don't have to, you know, go to the dirty hospital, you know, where COVID people are at and get stamped by the doctor who follows you with the social security agency uh, and, and takes a, an actual, you know, fingerprint or a footprint and actually documents the baby. And when they document it, they're registering it. When they're registering it, they're taking really, a, you know, a possession of it, like the way that you go get your dog tagged. So in 1933, you know, the social security network and these social security numbers and these birth certificates are going to be used to begin to control the people. Now all leads later on to you know, IDs, which are really uh, the, the way that they have of controlling people now. And ultimately, the, the point of this whole, kind of my whole uh, dialogue here is to point out that the people that are coming in, I guess we had 400,000 last month, it's almost half a million, it's more than most small cities in America, you know, then they're just all kinds of random people, Zimbabwean, you know, just all the people of the world that are pouring across the border now, uh, these people are not with social security numbers, they don't have any kind of uh, federal accountability they're not they're not monetized they're not tagged by the government so that's why they catch and release people that are foreign nationals or they're just undocumented people because uh they don't have a driver's license they don't have a social security number and they're really not liable for the jurisdiction of those courts so they just let them on go so that means everyone else here is liable for the laws and especially the statutorial laws the guide everything we do, you must wear a mask, or they call the security guards over, they call the police, and you get arrested because you didn't wear a mask. All these statutory rules and these kind of overarching, as a student, you must now get a vaccine or you're going to get kicked off campus. All these arbitrary rules that are coming down through the UNESCO and the United Nations and, you know, the World Bank and basically the, the New World Order rules about COVID don't apply to illegal immigrants. And, and neither do, you know, when the police come over and they pull someone over who has a, doesn't have a driver's license and they're a Mexican national, maybe they have a Mexican driver's license, they're just going to just let them go. And even if they go into jail, I myself personally have witnessed it in court in Gainesville, Florida, a different one time or another when, uh, when you know, five to seven people who can't speak English or not from America are just ushered in away and dismissed, the case is dismissed, why everyone else has to get the punishment of the court. And held liable and not released. You understand? So this whole mechanism of federal, uh, and really the federalization, Washington's power and the supremacy of Washington, federal government, national government over the rest of the state governments, was also a matter of the court systems as well. So that the national, the, the federal court system, the supreme, you know, the court system, as it were, uh, the, the the federal courts are going to ultimately have this, this supremacy as well as far as the authority. So there's this clashing between authorities and counties. So the county you live in has to has to have these nullification laws like we talked about before um, in order to, you know, remain constitutional. And many, many of these, many of these counties who are blue counties and blue cities and blue, blue areas in the country who are just voluntarily shutting down and masking everyone and sending the police out to shut down events are not constitutional. They're just coming off of the they're coming off of the the direction and the guidance of the World Economic Forum and the Global Economic Forum and the you know the you know it all, it's all affected. If you have a church, the World Council of Churches, and so on and so forth. 
So let's carry on with our fascinating discussion, and we have more to go. Bill Gertz and, and many of the people we have on these annual broadcasts, and Miles says, hey, this this uh, SARS virus is out of control. It's uh, the, the Chinese New Year's is going to be canceled for the first time in 10,000 years, by the way. My question is, Tony Fauci, St. Tony Fauci, understand that the intelligence services knew that something, and by the way, now we think it's July because of Sherry Markson's uh, reporting. It's July of 2019's. Definitely around the military games are in October 2019, but in Wuhan itself and in the hospitals, we knew it was in December of 2019. Why was Tony Fauci and the CDC, who are supposed to be so great, you talk about, Bannon, all he wants to do is destroy the state. No, I want to rejuvenate these, these bureaucracies that have ossified. Why did Tony Fauci, the genius, why did he not know about what Steve Bannon knew, Miles Grove knew? Others knew in mid-January and go to the president before the Chinese showed up. He says, hey, you know what? Maybe these guys should be tested for this. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe we should do it remote. Where was Collins and Tony Fauci? This is why Collins is resigning. And Collins, all I'm telling you, Collins, is preserve your documents. Because come November 2022, when the Oversight Committee shifts to Republicans, there's no more happy clappy. Okay, there's no more happy clappy. We're going to come and we're going to get to the whole reason. Why did, why did Collins and Fauci not warn the President of the United States when the Chinese Communist Party delegation came over in January, when less than eight days later they shut down, they quarantined a, a Hubei province, which is the size of France, and they quarantined Wuhan, which is 40% bigger than New York City. Why did Tony Fauci not warn the President of the United States then, Dr. Peter Navarro? In, in Chapter 2, I give the big reveal about Tony Fauci. I'm going head-to-head -head with this SOB in the Situation Room fighting for the China travel ban. This guy's against it. Now, here's the punchline, Steve. This is on the same day he got an email from a guy from the Scripps Institute who told him flat out that that virus was likely genetically engineered and therefore came from the Wuhan lab. Now, at that point, even even if even prior to that, Fauci wasn't paying attention to all the intelligence folks. At that point, Fauci knew that that virus likely came from the lab, and more importantly, that it was a result of his and Francis Collins' gain-of-function experiments authorized behind President Trump's back for that Wuhan lab. So what did Fauci do? Cover up, cover up, cover up. This man has so much blood on his hands because of his behavior in this pandemic. The answer to that question, Steve, is Fauci knew exactly what was going on. He did not tell the president. He went to the American people and CNN and everywhere else and presented himself as St. Fauci, the sage of a, of a virus that somehow jumped from nature, and he was lying to the American people, stone cold lie, like he lied to Rand Paul about gain of function experiments. This guy belongs in an orange jumpsuit. My prediction, Steve, is that after people get finished reading in Trump time, get finished reading Sherry Markson's book, get finished reading Bobby Kennedy's book on what happened with Tony Fauci, the Wuhan lab, the Chinese Communist Party, Fauci will not only be gone by Christmas, he will be strapped into a chair on Capitol Hill, forced to confess all of his sins, 
and wind up eventually in jail because he lied to Congress and he killed Americans. But so we'll just give it a little pause right there, rolling in throughout our subject matter here and our different topics. And you can see that we have a wide range of of different issues we wanted to you know get across here on this on this podcast. And I think that some of these I, I, their podcast is like a hundred million downloads now so that i mean i think a lot of people are listening to it so if you didn't have time to catch those important highlights that's part of the discourse that is it's, it's so phenomenal and it's so uh, it, it's, it's so american and we have to be prepared to be totally uh, sober we, we only have uh, you know several hundred million americans and there's no telling how many um, you know illegal immigrants are, are coming into the country undocumented people who are not liable for the for the death, they're not liable. They're 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 new blood. They're they're new, you know. To describe them as, as invaders, but they're really new denizens of the land, who who aren't really beholden to the the, the currency collapse necessarily. They're just here for like, to scavenge. They're just here to to get what they can get to to, to take jobs to 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 funnel money back to uh, the, the places that are meaningful to them. And, uh, you know, people are only interested in, in my country, back in my country, and in Honduras and Guatemala, and the places that are important to me. And America is just, just a, you know, just a temporary a temporary place, a temporary a working place in order to build up wealth to take back to, to, to the homeland. So that does nothing for the American economy itself. It doesn't do anything for, the, for America's future. It doesn't do anything to build up America's, uh, uh, you know, economic strength or the actual citizens of the nation here who are accountable for all this. They're, they're always talking about the full faith and credit of the, of the American people. Well, that's you and me. That's, it's on our backs that this debt is being incurred, and we're working to pay it back. And these, uh, the, the other people that are here are not paying taxes. They're working with false Social Security numbers. They're, they're, not, they're just being paid under the table. They're just being paid for their time, and they're not paying or contributing into the system. And a lot of them are able to vote. And, and, and this isn't really personal on them, but they're able to receive welfare assistance. And, and, and so it's really just a bleed out of the American economy. And in order to, to think about how to preserve that, we're going to have to take uh, you know, different measures as a nation. And we want to avoid phenomenal extremism and radicalism and, and, and ultra-nationalism that, that leads to violence and chaos. We just need to find a way to, uh, you know, we were discussing... You know, my wife were discussing that perhaps Florida should have its own currency, you know? Maybe we can have our own state currency, you know, and that's something we need to think about. But as we go forward, uh, we have just a couple more things we want to introduce in this episode. We have a very fascinating discussion here with Eric Metaxas. And he has Victor David Davis Hansen on, and they their conversation is phenomenal, and it's fascinating. We just really need to take a listen to it. Plus, then, what is the, what is the thesis? Well, I tried to look at the things in the news in 2000, late 2019 and 2020, and then I wrote an epilogue to update it. And I thought there was a common denominator, and that is this very fragile, very rare idea in the history of civilization of a citizen, an empowered middle-class resident who had rights and responsibilities, who elected his own officials, audited them, could remove them, decided when and where, if, to go to war, what revenues, what expenditures, etc. They were self-governed. And what made them successful and what made them fail, and how would that be relevant to us? 
So we didn't get just trapped in the 24-hour news cycle. And I came up with two large groups. One was pressures on citizenship from the ground up, organic, natural. And the first was the shrinkage or the attacks, economic, social, cultural, on the middle class. Without a middle class, you don't have enough people who are autonomous uh, and independent, both economically and politically, to keep government uh, accountable. The rich tend to use their power and wealth to leverage government or to have serf-like uh, relationships with the poor, sort of like the Democratic Party. It's a very rich party and a lot of subsidized poor. And the poor tend to be envious of the rich or they depend on government. But the middle class has to be viable, and I explain in the book why it's not. It's starting to shrink its buying power, its numbers. Uh, there are people who are delaying marriage, childbirth, home buying, uh, huge debt, credit card, and, and things like tuition debt. I, I have to ask you uh, what um, the Biden administration seems to be doing, and I know many Americans, if not most, are at least thinking this. It seems that they are intentionally destroying America. In other words, it seems that they are uh, working to do the kinds of things that are destroying the country, and we we can wonder how intentional that is, uh, whether there's a, there's a backside to it. They think if we tear apart this, it'll, there's something good on the other side, some utopia. Um, but when you talk about the middle class, there does seem to be a war on the middle class. There seems to be no concern, for example, for gas prices, for, for uh, inflation. It, it seems like, I guess I, I get the idea, and I think others have the idea, that there, this may be somehow intentional. This may be part of a larger plan um, to disenfranchise the, the, the middle class, to, to make the, the serf class, the dependent class, more dependent and larger. Um, it's impossible for me at this point not, not to wonder seriously about that. No, not that's one of the thesis in the book. They don't like things like a detached house with a lawn. Everybody's going to live vertically integrated, take mass transit, be dependent on government pricing and jobs, etc. And then I think I also said, historically, you have to have a sacred space, a place where customs can be uh, cultivated, traditions can be honored, there, people can develop affinities, and they, the, the core is not diluted by fluid borders. You know, you can't be you can't be in Zululand or all in India and then have Dickens London at the center, which is the problem that British had. So we had de definable, secure borders, and within those borders, we had a unique culture. But when you destroy those borders, then you get a migratory, transient population. Now we have 50 million people who weren't born in the United States, 27% of the population in California. So these are organic things. Another one was tribalism. That's a pre-civilization Oh, primitive, natural, natural tendency of humans to flock together by superficial appearance. And yet I thought we had gone beyond that, evolved beyond that in a way that countries like Rwanda or the former Yugoslavia didn't to their diminishment. But we haven't. We're going retrograde. We're being reactionary. We're going back to this ancient idea, pre-civilizational 
that that person looks like me or that person has the same ethnic background, then that's my primary affinity, not this abstraction of Americanism. It's not based on blood and soil. So, Eric, those were organic pressures on citizens. But unfortunately, the second half of the book is from what I would call the top down. And these are elites, activists, legal scholars, academics. And the first, of course, you and I have talked about is this permanent judge, jury, executioner, administrative state. These are unelected people. They can be General Milley, they can be Lois Lerner, they can be James Clapper, John Brennan, Robert Mueller, but, or they can be your local EPA uh, inspector, but they have enormous power and they're not subject to audit or correction anymore by the citizens. Two, or two and a half million in the federal workforce, 40% of us all work for the government of some sort. And then there's evolutionaries. These are the people who are very small in number, but very influential legal scholars, especially academics, but also progressive politicians. They don't believe that human nature is fixed. It's fluid. It's, it's, uh, it's evolving to a higher level given their better education or nutrition or technology. And they feel that the constitution and the customs and traditions that surround it are ossified. So let's get rid of, by one vote margin, if we need be in the Senate, get rid of the 180-year filibuster. Junk the 233-year-old electoral college. Never ask why they were important. Get rid of the 150-year nine-person court. Get rid of uh, the state's primary responsibility for balloting in national elections. Get rid of the 50-state union that we've had for 60 years. So in that chapter, I try to explain, if you can't win under the present system, if your left-wing agenda is not popular, then you have to alter the demography and you have to alter the rules. And the final corollary to that is globalism. That, and that's an ancient idea. Socrates said he was a cosmopolitan, a cosmopolitan, a city, a citizen not of Athens, but of the cosmos. And that's the idea that Tony Blinken's going to invite in the UN to adjudicate whether we're racist. Or the Paris Climate Accord people will tell us whether we can burn natural gas. Or the International Criminal Court will find whether a soldier should have called in an airstrike in Afghanistan. Or the WHO, when they tell us that China has a disease that will not break out, it's not transmissible, do not worry, but it is racist to have a travel ban. We're, to, um, we're not only to fund that, we're to obey that. And so those, those are also pressures on citizenships as sovereign people of the middle class that, that have accountability and control of the permanent bureaucracy and especially uh, the academic class that tries to alter their constitution. Doesn't this all effectively add up to taxation without representation? How is it any different from what we uh, took up arms uh, to end? I think it is, except, remember, King George III, he wanted taxation without representation to fuel the British Empire. And he said to make the colonists pay for the protection he offered them that they didn't want anymore. But I think this has driven the ring that binds all these rings, to quote Tolkien, or the common denominator is they do believe in this idea of equity, this new word that they've coined from the old word equity, of equality of result. And all of those corollaries to that theme 
explain what they're doing. And by that I mean, if you have more money than I do, then there's something culpable about you. You rigged the system, you were white, you inherited more than I did, or vice versa. And therefore, you're you're an oppressor and I'm an oppressed. And I can look toward government. If I give it enough power, I have to give it enough power so that they can even the playing field. They can correct for health. They can correct for bad luck, sloth, industriousness, all of these uh, different traits that are as varied and, uh, and multifarious as our DNA. They have the power to make us all equal. And once we get that in our mind, with one small exception, that the platonic guardians have to be exempt because they're so pure and they're morally superior that the ramifications of their own ideology must never apply, whether it's John Kerry's, you know, yacht or John Kerry's private jet or hang on, hang on just a moment. Uh, we're going to yeah. go to a break. We're going to be right back, folks, talking to the author of The Dying Citizen, Victor Davis Hanson. Folks, I'm talking to Victor Davis Hanson, the new book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, Oxford, comma, and Globalization are Destroying the Idea of America. Um, you were just uh, making a point, and you were about to give us another example uh, of what you were describing. I don't know if you remember. I do. Uh, well, Eric, we know that we have people like Nancy Pelosi that violates the quarantine. She insists on others to get her hair done. Or we have these various mayors who break out, or Gavin Newsom has to eat at the French Laundry. Remember, they always violate their own norms in the most elite, refined, and sophisticated manner. But we even have the Marxists, the, the shock troops of this revolution that we're fighting. Phyllis Quellars is on her fourth house. It's it's an all-white defunct. Is this the know? woman that has raked in zillions uh, with yes. with BLM, Black yes. Lives Matter? She cares so much. Yes about the poor that she has a fourth house. Isn't that sweet? Um, yeah. I, I want to ask you, you know, when you when you talk about why they're doing this in the name of equality and so on and so forth, isn't it ultimately irrelevant? Of course it's irrelevant. In other words, if we the people don't give them permission to do this, they must not do it. They have no right to do it. So what they're doing is in contravention of the whole idea of America, that we the people choose our leaders to do what we need them to do. They are uncomfortable with that, so they're looking for a way around it, and they've been finding ways around it. Yeah, and I, and I mentioned that in the book, that, that what I just said is what we used to say in Thucydidean scholarship, the prophasis, the pretext. That's what they say they want, equality, and they're willing to try to enact it out, but it's really about their desire for power, just like the Bolsheviks or the Jacobins. Uh, they want power among an elite, and they're very frustrated, angry people. A lot of them are people that were highly educated, and they feel that their talents have not been appreciated, or they haven't made enough money, or they worship people who have made more money, or they made a lot of money, and yet they feel, I have all this money, I'm Mark Zuckerberg, I'm Bill Gates, but where's the power? Where's the power that goes with it? So. They want power and they want the ability to target and focus on the hated middle class. The middle class, again, does not have their culture or their sophistication, and it does not have the romance of the poor. And so they feel, you know, these are the Winnebago buying, the snowmobile buying, the jet skis buying, creepy people that want to come up to our level, but we don't want them around. They're deplorable, they're clingers, they're chums, they're dregs. They're Donald Trump and his minions. Uh, 
Did, did yeah. the idea of God come into this at all for you? I mean, of course, the founders, uh, you know, wrote considerably about a morality and religion, and Tocqueville talks about that. You really cannot have the kind of freedom and self-government that we have had uh, without some kind of, uh, of faith, virtue, some mechanisms at, because what I government that we have had uh, without some kind of, uh, of faith, virtue, some mechanisms for that, because what I you know notice over and over is that the places where there is the least freedom, their biggest enemy is usually communities of faith, whether it's the Uyghur Muslims or the Christians that that, that, that people uh, in this elite zone, they have a kind of a secular, mentality, and they're threatened by people who answer to a higher authority. Um, does that, I don't know if that comes into the book or into your own thing. It, it does in both, and I try to point out that when you talk of, as they do, critical theory, or critical legal theory, or critical racial theory, or new monetary theory, all of these things are at odds with nature. In other words, if you print money, you do have to really pay it back on like new monetary theory. Critical race theory says you can be a racist and stop racist, but it's still racism. So our law and critical legal theory says our laws are just constructs that protect the wealthy, the white, the male, and they don't represent deterrence about theft or murder. But Law has a natural element to it. It's innate. We're born with a sort of transcendent idea of right and wrong. That comes from a creator. And so that's one thing they will not acknowledge, that these laws that we make reflect that, that, that truth. And the second is, it is true that when you combine free market capitalism with constitutional government, you create a level of freedom and affluence and leisure that the world has never seen, and we're very unique. We have this huge space, bi-coastal continent, but there had to be something blessed, as the founders thought. There had to be some divine providence that allowed this particular country to be so powerful, so instrumental, so moral in a way that uh, even at our worst moments, like getting out of Afghanistan, no other country in the periods of humiliation and stupidity would have, as General McKenzie said, no worries, all of the Afghan refugees will be having culturally sensitive food. And, I mean, that impulse is sort of, I don't know what it is, but it's it can be warped, but it's this American idea that we really, 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 really want to be good, and we really, really, really want to be divine or perfect, and that can be very detrimental, but it still shows you that deeply imprinted upon the American story is the idea that, of morality. Well, and obviously, the, the only the problem is they've, they've divorced uh, that from its roots. In, in other words, they have yeah. now acted as though they invented this, and they can, they can kick away the place uh, that it yeah, comes made from. It into, I, I think they've made it into a secular religion in the sense of the Enlightenment. They think that yeah. their god is ratio, reason, and it's reasonable to do this, but they don't realize that some of the things that they want to do are irrational. And why are they irrational? Because they're based on a higher moral code, even though they want to attribute it to reason or sensitivity or education, but it's not really it. The impulse is to be, turn this the cheek, the other cheek and, and follow the Sermon on the Mount. You were just uh, talking about uh, the, the idea of divorcing um, 
virtue, whatever it is, from its roots. And it becomes a thing unto itself. And, of course, ironically, horrifyingly, it ends up being oppressive and even, uh, in some cases, looks demonic. When we think about uh, the arbitrary rules in places like North Korea or in China and in other places, it becomes uh, so dark and so horrifying. And I've always been fascinated how it is that intellectuals can somehow look away from those kinds of things, whether it's Lillian Hellman or, uh, I don't know, was it Sartre, uh, you know, apologizing for Stalin or thinking, well, it doesn't matter. I, I'm just fascinated about that. And I wonder what you think some of our leaders, how they, how they deal with that. Because it seems when you hear about what's going on, you know, uh, Uyghur Muslims being murdered for their organs, which can be sold for $500,000 now that we've got all this technology, you think, the Nazis would have loved to do this because it, 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 it was consonant with their worldview, but they didn't have the technology. We now have the technology. Uh, I just yeah. wonder if, if uh, you know, folks like uh, Susan Rice or Hillary Clinton, do they think about human rights along those lines? What, what do you suppose? I think they go back lines? to an, uh, that, that's a topic that becomes thematic in a lot of Plato's dialogues. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I think it's very germane to a lot of us, what you're talking about. And that is that when people become educated, especially rhetorically educated, and they can make an argument that sounds persuasive, the sophist, for example, then that cannot be confused with truth. So we credential these people. We, we say, go to these particular places and get a cattle brown, Harvard, Yale, Stanford. And then once you're there, learn how to speak a particular uh, vocabulary or lexicon and act a particular way and make a particular argument that seems very persuasive. And that's going to be uh, equated with what's true and what's moral and what's right. When we hear these generals, I can't even understand the, the words they use to describe the humiliation and the defeat because it, it's not. It's this was the logistical. The, all the, they have this gobbledygook new words that we don't know. And and so what I'm suggesting is that you got to be very careful that because a person can persuade somebody given a particular training in vocabulary and language and rationale that therefore it's not it's not only true but it must be moral and right and they really do that in the abortion issue and the woman's right to choose and and free to choose but what they're really saying is that that uh, viable baby is not a fetus it's a baby that a person has a right to liquidate that because that's her choice. And if you follow that, that person has a right to do what? To another person, another person, another person. It's not that much different if you're caring for an older person. You say, I'm the only daughter and I have a 90-year-old father and he's ruining my life and he's impaired my choices and he has no innate ability to live outside this room. I'm going to get liquidated. So you can see where it goes, but they, it, it's very hard to argue with them because they say to us, well, you, the whole world is explicable. And you say to them, no, it's not. You can't explain everything because there's an element of faith that's, that's sacrosanct and resist your logic. And they'll say, well, you're superstitious. And so every intellectual that I know cannot admit a role for faith or belief or Christianity or transcendence because to do so would suggest that they're somehow 
traitors to the intellectual or, or rational tradition. To, to, to be sure, did, were, were you raised in a community of faith, or is this something that you you found later in in life? Well, I was. My grandparents were Methodist, and my other grandparents were Lutherans. But my parents uh, were the World War II generation, so we were always told, you know, we were all Christians, and we'd go to church once in a while. My grandparents, but they were not, I would say, devout Christians. But they were, certainly were not atheists. And I think that after 20 years of teaching the New Testament, because that seems to be after I would teach a year of Greek before I would go into Sophocles or Xenophon, I would always read John or Mark or Matthew in Greek with students. And after a while, you become very acquainted. And it, it was a reinforcement of something that I had been taught, but I hadn't been, I, I guess, devout in a sense. But I, I, I do feel that it's a very important element historically of the civilization. And, uh, you know, just as a, a point, when you look at Rome, that it bifurcates and it goes into Western Rome that eventually collapsed, and then Byzantine Rome survives. And everybody says, well, we get the adjective Byzantine, it was backward, it was rigid, the West was... Uh, you know, it was exciting, it was dynamic, and it had all of these migration, and then it made feudal Europe. But actually, if you look at the Byzantine, they survived for a thousand years, and in their borders there was a Romanity, there was law, there was the whole promise of the classical tradition, and they did it by Hellenism. They said, we're going to have one language, and we're going to have one religion, the Greek Orthodox Church. I'm talking to Victor Davis Hansen, also known as VDH. The Dying Citizen is the book. Um, uh, Victor, since you've permitted me to call you Victor, uh, I, uh, I've been talking in this last year, the plague year, um, about hope and about the idea that I, I believe that uh, the good part of what we've been enduring uh is that many people formerly asleep are waking up. Um, I have been uh, excited to see a lot of that. People who uh, realize when things get this bad, maybe they should pay attention, maybe they should change their opinions on things. So I have hope. Uh, do, you, do you have hope? Where do you see things f from here? Well, I do have hope, and I, I have a long epilogue because the book was written before 2021, but I have an epilogue. And one of the things that I'm very hopeful about is that the traditional Republican Party is starting to metamorphosize. In other words, there were a lot of Americans that believed in many of its principles, but for a variety of rational and irrational reasons, they didn't want to be part of the party of Mitt Romney, for example. A decent man, a nice guy, but in their mind, a representation of a very elite person that was not concerned. When he gave that talk, for example, of, well, I can't do anything with the 47%, they're all takers, and wrote off that part of it. So when, what I mean in particular is when you see the border crisis, and then you see that Mexican-American communities along the borders are electing conservative representatives because they say, that's not what we want. They're destroying our communities. Or where I live in the San Joaquin Valley of California, people who are Mexican-American are saying, I'm not going to be taken for granted anymore. And maybe I'm going to I'm going to vote for a Republican because they're not the party of the golf course only anymore. And then you see the people who were the elite 
And that's what's really striking for me, Eric. I, you know, and I, I know a lot of the never number people. I agree with them on a lot of issues on free market economics and opposition to abortion in some cases and things like that. But they seem to be very angry that this new party is starting to say, we're not going to write off the interior of the United States and say, well, go, go learn coding. Or, you know, it's your fault, you're on opiates. That they can be very valuable workers. We need them. This is the industrial part of the world at one time. It can be again. And so this new slowly transformation of the slow transformation of the conservative movement into one that says all different races, all different creeds, but our primary focus is not race or religion, it's class. And we want a middle class because they are the most practical people and they are the foundation of citizenship, I think it's really spreading. And I think it's slow and, and we don't really know all of its contours yet, but how ironic that somebody who was a crass multi-billionaire let off this explosion and was the first person to say, China is not in our interest to have complete free trade, and they will never interpret our magnanimity to be reciprocated in like kind. They'll see it as weakness. Or if we're not going to go into optional wars in the Middle East and take the middle class and send them over there because we're going to be energy independent and we're going to have our own choices. So that will wrap it up for this edition of Syllabus Journal, and we hope to have you back with us very soon. And we hope that you will go ahead and look through the show index and hit the support button, go to Cash App, and, and, and send us some kind of reasonable support. That would be outstanding. Thank you.